reading today is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much um, for your love, Lord. And God, uh, thank you for sending your son down to save us, God. Um, and Lord, um, I thank you for the grace and mercy that you show to us um, daily, God. And I pray that we don't take that for granted, God. I pray that today we all will have our um, hearts open to what you have for us to learn today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. In case we haven't met, my name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church, and it's good to see each and every one this morning. Like a batter swinging for the fences on the first pitch, like a boxer going for the knockout at the opening bell, like a nation launching a nuclear missile before a single bullet is fired, the author of Hebrews begins his letter with the biggest and boldest declaration imaginable about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Oh God, please give our small and feeble minds the ability to grasp all of what it is you are communicating to us through these four verses. Help us to behold in awe and wonder your Son. Help us to be ever in amazement at Jesus, his person, his work, His cross, His love, His mercy, His greatness, His majesty, His power, His holiness, His radiance, His nature, His supreme worth. Church, today I will do my best to present to you the splendid and arrayed glory of Jesus Christ. But please take note of the task that is before me. Like my wife, who has the ability to pack an entire closet of clothes in one single tiny, tiny carry-on suitcase every time we travel, the author of Hebrews has somehow managed to pack the length, height, depth, 
breadth, and width of the person and work of Jesus Christ into one massively long run-on sentence in the original Greek. This massively long run-on sentence is numbered as four verses and punctuated into four sentences in our English Bible. But whether it is read in Greek or English, there are few words, if any, in all the universe that are as weighty and majestic as the opening of Hebrews. In the opening words, we find the author of Hebrews has made eight big, bold, beautiful declarations about the Son of God that we have gathered to worship this morning. And wrapped into the author's eighth and final declaration of his opening statement, we also receive the theme and message of the entire book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. He is above He is beyond, he is of greater worth, he is to be esteemed and worshipped above all things. No one and no thing can compare to Jesus Christ. Everything else pales in comparison. My sermon today is titled three words, Jesus is superior. To back up his claim that Jesus is superior, the author of Hebrews in the second half of verse 2 in chapter 1 says that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. Now we understand that in order to be an heir, you have to be a child. And previously to claiming that Jesus is the rightful heir of all things, the author of Hebrews has declared that he is God's son. Now I know this term can cause confusion for many people. But to avoid this confusion, let me briefly explain what the biblical writers mean when they declare that Jesus is the Son of God. I will use, for example, John 3.16, that familiar verse that so many of us know, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, for all of you science people in the room, when it is written, the only begotten Son, it is written in the Greek, monogenes, monogenes, the same genes. So the biblical writers are declaring throughout the New Testament that Jesus is of the same DNA, per se, as the Father, that He Himself is God as much as God is God, as much as the Father is God. He just happens to be God who has taken on flesh. And this is done to enforce the fact that no one is like Jesus. He is distinct as the Son of God. And because of that, the author of Hebrews says that he, in turn, is the heir of all things. Now, we know how this process of inheritance works, is that one day our parents pass on from this world, and then they pass on whatever amount of stuff they have to their children. So the idea that the biblical author is getting at here is that when David, King David says in Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, he is saying the same thing can be said of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that exists belongs to him, past, present, and future. Not only do all things belong to him, the author of Hebrews states that 
the world was created through Jesus, through whom also he created the world. If you look on the screen at John chapter 1, verse 3, we see that when John opens his gospel, he says about Jesus, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Expounding upon that, and in many ways restating what we see here in Hebrews, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, makes this big, bold declaration about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Out of these six verses, I want us to concentrate for a moment on verse 16. It's beginning and end. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Let's take a little journey beyond mom and dad's house for Thanksgiving. Let's say this week when you make that drive home, that instead of stopping off at your destination to eat turkey and stuffing and casserole and pecan pie and pumpkin pie and whatever it is you are going to gorge yourself on, you decided rather than stopping there, I am going to drive across the expanse of our entire solar system. And I'm going to take this journey at a rate of 65 miles per hour. If you went on that journey, it would only take you 13,172 years at a constant speed of 65 miles an hour to drive across the entire diameter of our solar system. Now, in case you need a little science refresher, um, our solar system exists inside of something called of a galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is where we reside. And in case you didn't know this, there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Now that's one galaxy with over 100 billion solar systems. In 1999, science told us there were 125 billion galaxies in the universe. As they went deeper and further into space, only 14 years later in 2013, science now tells us there are at least 225 billion galaxies in the universe, each containing at least 100 billion stars in each of them. And it is to this universe that the Bible declares from beginning to end, Jesus is its creator. Jesus is the one who brought all of this into existence. But the author of Hebrews is not done. For he says, next, Jesus is the radiance 
of the glory of God. Now, as the author of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, you have to understand the images that would have flooded into their minds as they would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. They would have thought back to the Shekinah glory of God when God's glory filled the tabernacle when it was first built. They would have thought back to the fire by night that led them through the desert in the Exodus. They would have had this burning image in their mind of the story about Moses when he had gone up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law from God and having been there 40 days in God's presence and in God's glory, when he came down from the mountain, his face shone so brightly from the reflection of God's glory that the people not asked him, but begged him and pleaded with him to put a veil over his face and to cover his face because it was so bright and shining they could not stand to be in his presence because he had been in the presence of God for the last 40 days. And so when the author here speaks of the radiance of the glory of God, that being Jesus, he is bringing up this image into their mind. Charles Spurgeon says about this verse, Jesus is the brightness of that glory. Shade your eyes, for you cannot look upon this wondrous sight without being dazzled by it. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, are we dazzled by the brightness of Jesus today? Think of it in looking at his creation. Think about the sun. The sun is 93 million miles from earth. How long can you stare into its glory? How long can you stare into its brightness before you have to turn your eyes away? How much brighter the Son of God who, is, who shines brighter and is more glorious than a thousand burning suns? Are we ever in amazement at the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. Consider these words in John 1.14, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you want to know where the glory of Jesus dwells, it dwells in His grace and His truth. If you want to be ever amazed by the person and work of Jesus, if you ever want to be amazed by the glory of Jesus, you find it by looking deep into His grace that is extended to us who have been forgiven of our sins. You find it in the truth that He so beautifully spoke and has revealed to us sinful, rebellious creatures. Jesus is the splendid glory of grace and truth. The fourth declaration the author of Hebrews makes is, He is the exact imprint of His nature. He is the exact representation of the very being of God. The same essence with the Father. This is why it was so scandalous and so outrageous when Jesus would say things like he does in John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
There are the reasons that the Pharisees went around trying to stone him and kill him. Because they said, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus made these big, bold declarations. But what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that if you want to know what God is like, you must look deep and long into the person of Jesus. For Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. From here, the author kind of switches gears for a moment and he ties back into something that he's already said. When he says in the next line, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I just want to tell you, I, I've, I've preached the entire book of Hebrews previously at my last church. This line right here is one of, if not the most captivating phrase in the entire book of Hebrews to me. He's already made the declaration that Jesus has created everything. Everything is created through him, by him, and for him. But think back to Genesis chapter 1. Think back to the opening of the entire Bible. Think back to the opening of the entire universe. To where God on those six days is repeated as saying, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be water. God said, let the water separate from the water. God said, let the sea creatures start to come forth in the water. Let the land creatures start to come forth from the land. And God said, let us make man in our image. The author of Hebrews here is saying that from that one word spoken by Jesus, however long ago, the entire universe still holds together from one word. Now just let that resonate in your soul, the power of the Word of God, the majesty of the Word of God, the grandeur and the greatness of the Word of God, that He can speak one word and you still hold together. All of your atoms, all of your mass, Everything in all of the universe across those 225 billion galaxies is all holding together in motion, not contracting in upon itself, not expanding upon itself at a rate too fast, but is perfectly fine-tuned throughout all of these galaxies from one word that was spoken by Jesus Christ. This guy is a little more than your homeboy. This guy is a little more than a good teacher. He's a little more than a, than a good prophet who had some nice things to say, that had some, some wisdom we, we can pick and choose which we want to follow. This God speaks one word and creates everything from it. And he holds it all together. If these five declarations haven't made you want to fall down and worship Jesus, 
then hopefully the sixth one will. He says, not only has he done all these things, but he has also made purification for sins. Let me first address how they would have heard this and understood this. For the author addresses this later in the book of Hebrews. And if you're just wondering why I keep saying the author is, because we have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. All right, We could give you five or six best guesses, but nobody actually knows who wrote this letter. Um, but it has been a part of the canon of Scripture since the very beginning. It says that he made the purification for sins. Now you have to understand that these people would have had this imagery of all of these animals being sacrificed because they had grown up in a Jewish system that was still going on where all these sacrifices in the temple are still being made. And you have to understand a person who was 40, 50, 60, maybe even to 70 years age, that for themselves they would have seen hundreds of animals sacrificed on their behalf over the course of their lifetime. That over the course of their lifetime they had seen hundreds of gallons of blood spilled on their behalf to make atonement for their sin. But not only would they have seen these sacrifices made on their behalf, they would have seen them made on behalf of their family. They would have seen it made on behalf of their community, on behalf of the entire nation. So over the course of their life, they had seen tens of thousands of animals and tens and thousands of gallons of blood spilled continually, daily, monthly, yearly, over and over and over for the sole sake of having their sins purified, of becoming pure before God, being made right before God, and having their sins forgiven. And to that, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, 1 through 5, tells them this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Picking this up down in verse 12 through 14, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Please do not miss what is being said here. Please understand that these people would have been overwhelmed and amazed at the Tens of thousands of gallons of blood they would have seen 
shed on their behalf and on the nation's behalf over the course of the lifetime, the author now says, through one sacrifice, atonement has been made. There is no more need for any sacrifice to be made. For Jesus did it in one perfect and complete sacrifice. Church, do not miss this fact. That Jesus became a curse for you. The death that we deserve to die. He dies in our place. Where the curse of God's wrath was upon us because of our sin, Jesus. Now you got to think about this. You got to think about this in light of everything that's been said so far. He, he, he's not just some guy who off the street sees someone in trouble and steps into our place. Like this is the one who created us. This is the one who speaks us into being. This is the one who knew us before we were ever even born, David declares. This God, who we have rebelled against and who we have sinned against, He not only creates us, He willingly comes down and takes on flesh and steps in our place and becomes a curse for us all so that we can be reunited and connected to Him. So that we can be declared holy and blameless, He takes on our sin and becomes a curse for us. That's what gives such weight and gravity to this opening sentence of, he, of opening sentence of Hebrews. Is not only did he create you, but he willingly became a curse for you so that you could be reconciled to him by his blood on the cross. Don't miss the weight and the gravity of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says that he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is why like throughout the New Testament we, we see words like we're at enmity with God or that we were the enemies of God before we were, we were reconciled to him. I mean, just think of how we naturally respond to our enemies. Think of how you naturally respond to someone when they cut you off in traffic. Right? Think of how you naturally respond if someone steals from you. Think of how you naturally respond if, if, if someone punches you, if someone hits you, if someone wrongs you in any way. You strike back. You lash out. We all do this. But not this God. This God says, no, 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 no. I will not lash back out at you. I will come and I will take the punishment that you deserve for, even though, even though you have sinned against me. Though you have directly offended me over and over and over by doing what is right in your own eyes and going your own way, I will step in. I will become a curse for you. I will become sin for you so that you can be reconciled to me. So that you can have my righteousness. So that you can have my goodness. So that you can have my holiness. So that you can be forever reconciled to me where one day I will take you and you will experience the never-ending, never-ceasing wonders of my glory for all of eternity. 
For who is like our God? Who is like this Jesus that this author talks about, that we sing about, that we, that we pray to, that we make requests of? Who is like Jesus? The seventh declaration that he makes is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he does this combining two ideas together. When the high priest went to work making sacrifices for the people, there was no chair in the tabernacle or on the temple for him to sit down. He was constantly at work constantly making sacrifices for sin. So the sitting down that Jesus does shows the completed nature of his work. But it is not the only thing that the author is alluding to here when he says that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The throne of God understood in the Jewish mind is the control center of the entire universe. And so when we think about this God, when we think about Jesus as He rules and reigns over the cosmos, as He is sovereign over the universe, He is not running around like a chicken with His head cut off trying to figure this all out and move all the pieces into place. For He sat and is sitting right now on the throne. And a ruler who sits down on the throne is completely chill and in charge. He is not worrying about anything. He is not fretting about anything. I mean, just think about, think about college football coaches. When players do things in the game that they know they're not supposed to do, they lose their mind, right? They run around, they scream, and they yell, and they go to the player, and they're all animated on the sideline going all over the place. Think about when parents are running around trying to corral their children when they're acting up, making fools of the family in public somewhere. They're freaking out, running around, chasing all over them. It says, look, no, Jesus is not freaking out. He's not running around. He's not sweating or fretting or going, hey, what should I be doing right now? Like he is just sitting down on his throne, ruling the universe. Now, I know right now, some of you in your mind are going, but, 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 what about this? What about this? What about this? What, what does this mean about the problem of evil? What does it mean about all the bad things that are happening in the world? I see this thing. It does not look like Jesus is in control of anything right now because this world is pretty crazy. And knowing you were going to have those thoughts in your mind, the author of Hebrews wrote this for you 2,000 years ago in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. All right? So though it may look like it's out of control, the author of Hebrews wants to assure you, Jesus has it all under control. Now, this should be terribly threatening to you and terribly comforting to you. It should be threatening because when things happen, 
They happen many times because God has allowed them to happen. Or God has directly caused them to happen, depending on what is happening at the time. And so the things that happen to you, by direct cause or by allow, Jesus is sovereignly in control of. The good things and the bad. That can be a terribly threatening thought to our minds. But it should also be a terribly comforting thing to our minds. Because when the Bible says things, like it does in Romans 8.29, you know, people always ask, and I think it's very natural to ask it in in, in college, what is is God's will for my life? Okay? I'm going to give you the answer, and if you'll write it down, you will never have to ask this question ever again. It's in the Bible, Romans 8.29. God's highest goal for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus. Okay? That's his ultimate goal. That's his ultimate aim. So never again do you have to go, I wonder what God's will for my life is. I can tell you what it is. It's to conform you to the image of Jesus. Every time. That's the answer. So he is using everything in your past that he has been sovereign over, everything in your present that he is sovereign over, everything in the future that he is sovereign over, to conform you to the image of Jesus. You are a part of a much bigger plan and design in this universe beyond yourself. God is writing a story in the world and in the universe for all of eternity that is bigger than you. It is bigger than me. And that should be terribly threatening to us as we want life to be our way right away. But it should be terribly comforting to us to know that everything that happens good and bad there is a sovereign God working it out for our good and for his glory conforming us to the image of Jesus all of these seven declarations we have seen so far lead to the author's eighth and final final declaration in his opening statement, Jesus is superior. This eighth declaration here that he makes is that Jesus is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The people of this day were, though followers of Jesus inside of this Hebrew church, They had gotten off track and they were looking to other things and they were looking to to angels. They were looking to these messengers from God for, for guidance and direction. And the author wants to remind them that Jesus is superior to these created beings. And he goes on for the rest of the chapter telling how Jesus is superior. But he doesn't just go on for the rest of the chapter. He goes on for the rest of the entire book of Hebrews. So if any of you now want to read the book of Hebrews and know what it's about, let me just tell you the theme of this book. It is not only Jesus is superior, but it's done inside of Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is a superior Sabbath. He's a superior high priest. He's a superior Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. He's a superior covenant. 
a superior holy place, a superior sacrifice, a superior place to put your faith. He's a superior kingdom that cannot be shaken. The reason the author of Hebrews tells you, you should put your faith in Jesus. The reason that God rewards us for putting our faith in Jesus. The reason why it's insane to not put your faith in Jesus is because He is superior to all things. Everything that I have said up to this point, everything that I have exposited this morning and brought out of the Word of God in these four verses has been to establish three words. Jesus is superior. But there's one last thing that I haven't pointed out from the very beginning of this opening sentence in verses 1 and 2. Please look there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The author of Hebrews, in making all of these declarations that Jesus is superior, wants you to know that Jesus has spoken. That God has spoken through Jesus, who John declares is the Word. And He has spoken through this Word that we have. This divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God given to us by men, passed down by the centuries, through the centuries, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word given to us. In this are the words of God. In this are the words of Jesus. And the question that we must ask about these words, which are superior to anything else in all of existence, is, are you listening. He makes this declaration that Jesus has spoken, that this is God's word. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you listening? Are we listening to this word? Now, understand something that anytime you ever read the Bible and it talks about listening and it talks about hearing, it often means something a little different than how we use these words in our English language. Because when we talk about hearing and listening, we, we a lot of times think about, oh, I, I heard that, and I heard the sound from your vocal cords resonate into my eardrum and to make connection in my brain so I could understand it. But when the Bible uses words like hearing and listening, it it carries with it a grand assumption that you have not heard and you have not listened until you've done what was spoken. And let me give you just a classic example I'm sure all of you have been a part of in your life. At some point in time, your parents told you to do something. And they said to you, because you didn't do that thing they told you to do, did you hear me? Now, why did they say that? 
Because the room that they told you to clean that your ear hole heard did not result in your hands and your feet picking up the stuff in your room. So it is understood that you have not heard until you have done. Those who are doing, those who are doing what is asked of them, doing what is told of them, have not completed the action of hearing or listening until they have done what it is they have been told to do. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we actually listening to the Word of God? Are we actually hearing the Word of God? How much is this Word of God that has been spoken a part of your life? It is, the, is it the first and primary place that you go to when you need wisdom in this life? Is it the first voice that you listen to? The words on this page, the words from Jesus, the word applied by God's Holy Spirit, amplifying the work and person of Jesus Christ. How do these direct words from Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 hit you this morning? When Jesus would say to you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you listening to those words from Jesus today? Do they make it past your ear canal? Do they make it down into your heart to where you're truly listening to you who are struggling and need comfort jesus has uttered those words to you that if you are weary and heavy laden come to him and he will give you rest for he is your god for he is your creator he became your curse so that he could become your reconciler so that he could give you his righteousness so that you could take on his yoke that is easy and his burden that is light. What about these words that he spoke in Matthew 12, 36? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You ever thought about that? As comforting as that previous passage was, this one feels rather threatening, doesn't it? You are going to give an account for every single word that you speak over the course of your existence. The remedy? Sleep as much as possible. <laughs> but just think of the weight of that. That Jesus says directly to him, you're going to give an account. This is, should be radically threatening to you but it should also be radically comforting that he has already paid for and covered over every single one of those careless words to which you and I will give account. Does that matter to you? 
Does hearing Jesus say those words, does it matter? Does it impact your heart? Does it, does it go beyond just the words of me speaking or the words off this page and have any impact into who you are this morning? Are you hearing those words from Jesus? What about when Jesus says things like this in Mark 8, 34 through 38? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now let me just say, when Jesus talks about salvation, when Jesus talks about true life, when Jesus talks about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, these are the phrases that he uses. Now, I know many of us came to Jesus under the guise of pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. Just so you know, that's nowhere in the Bible. You've probably heard that in church your entire life, it's nowhere in Scripture. Jesus never says anything remotely close to that. He says, if you want to come after me and follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Is it really worth forfeiting your soul to gain the whole, to gain the, is it really worth gaining the whole world to forfeit your soul? Jesus says, incredibly weighty and heavy words. Can you say that your life evo has evoked a response that shows, that bears the fruit that Jesus often talks about, that you've actually heard these words and you have said in your heart, I will give up my life for you and for the sake of the gospel. Now that doesn't mean you have to become a pastor or a missionary or anything else. You can do that as a businessman, as a scientist. You can do that in any occupation under the sun. But can you say that the goal and the aim of your life is for the sake of Jesus and his gospel? For Jesus says, denying yourself and taking up your cross, that's what it looks like. And only those who have denied themselves and taken up their cross are the ones who are guaranteed to inherit this salvation because the Holy Spirit has done a work in their heart, taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh that will respond to the words of Jesus. And that's why it's incredibly scary for people to be raised in a church and only ever hear the message or pray the prayer and ask Jesus into your heart because Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 23 and through 25, there will be people on that day who claim to me they did all these things in my name and I will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Can you, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, can you say that you have passed the test? For Paul tells us that we should examine ourselves regularly to see if we are truly in the faith. Well, Jesus would say you can know you are truly in the faith if you have actually denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow him. That if the, the, the direction of your life is pointed in such a way as to say, Jesus, whatever you want from me for the rest of my life, it's yours. 
if you can say that with your heart, if you can say that with your mouth, then I can tell you that salvation has come your way. And this is not from you, but it is a gift from God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit because only by the power of the Spirit will a human being give up their life for the sake of this one who has created them. Have you responded to Jesus appropriately? Have you heard his words to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him? And Jesus just didn't say this once. Look at John 12, 24 through 26. Truly, truly. Now remember, anytime Jesus repeats himself, truly, truly. He is especially emphasizing something, saying, hey, I really want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say because it's more important than what I've previously said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there, my ser- there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Much of what he said in Mark chapter 8 is found here in John chapter 12. Jesus repeats this over and over and over. Give up your life and follow me. Now the question is, is he worth it? Do you see him and deem him and value him as superior to all things, including your own life? Is this God worthy of abandoning yourself and following him? Because this same God who created the world and has done everything that I have spoken of this morning, one day speaking to his disciples in John 14, 6, says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. C.S. Lewis said about this verse, every human being must stare directly into this verse and they must respond one of three ways. Because Jesus makes statements like this all throughout the scripture. A guy who stands up in front of you and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that no one can come to God except through me, there's only three possibilities. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And every person makes that confession with their mouth and with the way that they live. Does the confession of your mouth and the confession of your heart and the confession of your life lead someone to believe that Jesus truly is Lord? Just think about it for a moment. Think about right now if someone walked in off the street into this room and stood up in front of this room and said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. None of you are getting to God except through me. We'd laugh. We'd giggle. We'd call the mental hospital. 
We take him in. Because we would think he's a liar and he's a lunatic. And anybody who would say those things who wasn't actually Lord is actually a liar or a lunatic. But one who can confidently say, one who can confidently prove through his own actions and through his own life, through his own holiness, his own righteousness, his own sacrifice for us, we can include nothing but that he is superior, that he is Lord, and he is worth anything that he would ask from us. For he is our God and he is our maker. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our Lord. And the Bible says in John 6, no one can come to him unless he draws you. So if you are here today and you feel as if your heart is dead before God and you're like, Daniel, I, I, I want this to be true. I, I want to give my life, but yet I feel dead on the inside. Then you need to ask that God would draw you to him. That His Holy Spirit would do a supernatural work drawing you to Himself. Pray that He would give you a heart. That He would take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that would cause you to abandon your own life and to follow Him who is worthy of all your love, affection, devotion, your time, your effort, and energy. To that end, I will pray over us this morning and then the band will lead us through the rest of our service. Father, I thank you for this awesome privilege to proclaim that Jesus is superior. Father, I pray that you would open the hearts and lives of each and every person in this room to see the worth of Jesus. That he is more superior than any dream, than any thought, than any pain, than any sorrow that they are carrying. That there is a God who desires to draw near to them to attach himself to them so that they can be in Christ, so that Christ can be in them, so that they can walk each and every day in the freedom under the sovereign hand of this God who has become a curse for them, who has died for them, who offers to reconcile them to himself and to pour out on them his eternal glories for all eternity. God, I know people are being lied to right now by Satan, by his demons. They're being lied to by their own flesh and by the world. Father, I pray that as light pierces the darkness, that darkness cannot hold back the light, that right now through the power of your Spirit, you, you would pierce through the darkness in their hearts and their minds and you would shine brightly on them the areas that need to be exposed. 
but the areas they are holding back from you, whether it be their entire being or just one little place off in the corner they don't want anybody else to know, that you would expose it through the power of your spirit and that they would let it go. That they would surrender everything in their hearts and their lives to the one who is superior to all things. God, so much could be said. But may we leave here never forgetting for the rest of our days that Jesus is superior to us and everything that we desire, everything that we want, to everything this world has to offer. And in light of that, may we listen, may we hear those words, and may we, as your Son has told us to, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and give up our lives for His sake and for the gospel. Knowing that one day we will be welcomed into your eternal arms. Father, may every person in this room and every person who is associated with this church hear one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do this in us for our good and for the glory of your great and holy name. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that I request all of these things. Amen.